This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about the world of comics, cartoon strips, and sequential art. On tonight's program, I'm talking to Craig Thompson, the award-winning artist who's best known for such books as Habibi and Blankets, and has now finished his first full-colour children's graphic novel, Space Dumplings. I caught up with Craig as part of his European tour to talk about children's comics, scatological humour, and collaborating with other creators. As with your previous books, uh, Blankets and Habibi, yet again this is very different uh, to the previous graphic novel that you brought out. Is that sort of a challenge you set for yourself, that it's going to be a different genre, it's going to be a different kind of storytelling each time you approach a long project? Yeah, entirely. Um, I mean, part of that is just as an artist, I kind of get bored with whatever I'm working on, especially because I'm engaged in these several year long projects Mm. so within that last finish line stretch the last six months or whatever of a book I'm pretty sick of whatever I'm working on (laughs) and there's this this sort of desire just like my sort of youth that's depicted in blankets where I just Mm. want to burn everything I've created it's just it it comes from that same impulse I kind of want to burn the last project and start from a completely blank slate Mm. um yeah, and, and, and whatever, you know, whatever the energy is of one project, so for instance with, with Habibi it was very long term, mm. research based, and at times very dark, kind of probing some sort of dark psychic spaces, mm. um, I kind of want the opposite energy to sort of <laughs> replenish whatever I've neglected or, or, you know, deprived during the previous project. So after Habibi, I wanted to do something playful, mm. something humorous, and something that um, kids could read. Yeah. And when I say that, it's not like exclusive for kids, but it's like the first of my books that intentionally, mm. you know, is designed for kids also to read. When I, when I did Habibi, uh, one of my friend's eight-year-old daughters got a hold of the book. They came yeah. home and she'd read the whole book. And I was sort of like slightly uh, disturbed by that, <laughs> that thought of like, oh, it's not appropriate for an eight-year-old kid. Um, and, uh, and, and it's that kind of thing that where it's like, you know, I wanted to have a book that my friend's kids could read. Mm. Maybe more importantly, I wanted to have a book that, um, that would give back to my sort of eight-year-old self that first saying. fell in love with comics. Perhaps one uh, child in particular. <laughs> yes. I mean, we can dive into that right away. I mean, like, uh, the, the main hero of the book, this little girl, Violet, is inspired by the birth of two of my best friends having a, like a, ch- uh, a baby daughter named Violet. She was born almost five years ago. Pretty much the day she was born, I knew I had to dedicate a book to her. Oh. So she wasn't yet developed as personality we see in the book. Mm. Uh, but even as an infant, she was, she was the inspiration. Mm. I knew I was like, she's going to be the star of my outer space adventure. <laughs> Although in terms of audiences for your books, uh, Goodbye Chunky Rice was kind of adopted as a children's book, I guess because the visuals, even though the story is quite emotional and has a resonance with adults. So presumably, depending on you know, what project you're working on, you don't necessarily think of the audience, except perhaps in this case. And each time it's a surprise to you, you know, which kind of different groups of people pick it up. 
Yeah, my my projected audience with any book is pretty small. Mm. So with Goodbye Chunky Rice, which you mentioned, it was written for a handful of friends back in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I did the book when I had made the first big move of my young adult life from Milwaukee, Wisconsin to Portland, Oregon, leaving behind my first like peer group of, of that I created on my own, essentially. Uh, and it was completely heartbroken, missing friends, so I made a book for them. Hmm. So there's maybe 10 people in mind when I made Chunky Rice. Blankets, I had mostly my immediate family in mind. It was sort of a coming out vehicle to hmm. my parents, and it was about my family. Hmm. Um, and then, yeah, with this one, maybe one of my core, with Space Dumplings, my core audience was my eight-year-old self. <laughs> um, but, you know, I still wanted to appeal beyond that, but like it's sort of like each book is a bit of a love letter to like a very intimate group. Mm. But interestingly, there aren't that many graphic novels aimed at children are probably still less with a female protagonist. So was it also in a way kind of aiming at a gap in the market that desperately needs um, expanding? Certainly when I started, I I mean, that's changing drastically already. Mm. Uh, But when I first started, I felt like I was of this sort of era of indie cartoonists who were trying to prove that comics weren't just for kids anymore. Mm. Like, you know, the 90s and early millennial independent cartoonists with, like, Dan Klaus and the Hernandez brothers and and, and those sort of people as our sort of outliers uh, were trying to make adult literary comics in, you know, in a form known for children's work. Mm. But, you know, after 20 years we really neglected that core audience. So suddenly there was this depletion of interesting work for kids. Mm. There was there's some licensed properties, but nothing original, you know, creator-owned material. Um, but there, during the process of working on this book, there started to be this wave, at least in the States, of great comics for kids. Or kids, mm. at least comics that were being successful with kids. Um, like Raina Tegelmeyer's Smile, and Zeta the Space Girl, I discovered, like, halfway into working on this book by uh, uh, Ben Hatke. I was like, oh no, someone's already done like <laughs> space dumplings. But they're, they're, they're different in spirit. But they, they both share like a female like little girl protagonist mm. in an outer space adventure. Mm. Uh, so right now, I'd have to say from my observations in the sort of US market, like kids comics are suddenly exploding. Or kids are the fastest growing market for graphic novels. Mm. And uh, I don't know if that corresponds yet on this side of the Atlantic. I don't think so, no. It definitely doesn't correspond in France, where there's this, mm. like, kids don't read comics right now in yeah. France. It's, it's like this weird, like, uh, you know, adult market of, like, you know, and it's like, what about the future generations? We've got to, like, replenish that well. Like, whoever, mm. kids got to be reading comics now so that, the, you know, we can hand off the baton for the relay. Mm. So that was a huge part of the motivation. Mm. Obviously, kids are quite happy to read big, chunky books like the Harry Potter novels, which get longer and longer and longer as they go on. Um, But since Space Dumplings is divided up into chapters, did you ever think perhaps of serializing it? I never did think of serializing it, but as now she mentioned it, I mean, it would have been a smart idea on a financial level. You know, like it's not financially astute to like put out a 300-page book for $15. You know, like like any other artist would divide it into a trilogy and make double the money. <laughs> but I'm not thinking of that, because I, I, you know, I think 
I think in terms of a reading experience, it sort of matches a cinematic experience. Yeah. You sit down, it's about two hours. Yeah. It's a three-act structure. It's an adventure. <laughs> I mean, hopefully there's some, like, it meanders and there's some surprises of all the character interaction. But mm. um, for me, it was very self-contained. Like, mm. you know, it has beginning, middle, and end. You just, you, you can have it all in one book. Mm. And, and you know, I lo- I'm like everyone. I'm kind of in love with serial entertainment now, in the form of like this renaissance in television. Mm. Um, but with a with a comic book, I still think like this is sort of the ideal format, where it's just all there in one satisfying heap. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, one kind of plot element that I see that you return to that was also in Habibi, although it's much subtler in this uh, to a certain extent, is kind of environmentalism. It's all about that humanity has screwed up the earth, we're screwing up space as well, you know, alongside loads of other aliens who are doing the same. Um, is it important to you that uh, there is kind of an underlying theme uh, to your books, even when it is an outlandish space adventure with talking chickens and um, whale poo and everything? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I mean, it definitely keeps me interested as an adult author. Mm. So, you know, on the surface, this is a comedy adventure in outer space. Mm. Um, but yes, it's infused with all the themes that drive me as an adult um, around environmental crisis and energy crisis and uh, social class divide. Um, I mean, it's the same. I get Yeah, it's the same with every book, you know, like... Um, those things emerge in spite of myself, too. Like, mm. for instance, in Blankets, the sort of religious themes, I didn't, like, dive into those headfirst. Mm. Uh, it was sort of a theme that, at a certain point, I like, couldn't avoid. It was embedded in the material, and I had to accept it. Mm. So I find that with all my books. Like, I can't, I can't remove my personality from yeah. it. Uh, but, I, you know, in the, in the case of this, that, like, that comedy adventure mm. was just a loose framework to, like, dress up with everything else I wanted to put in there. Mm. In, in the same way that Habibi had the magic squares as sort of a structure for within that sort of confinement, then you have all this freedom to play. Mm. I mean, you talk about your interests and your personality, and it, it's interesting that Blankets uh, talks about your embracing of atheism and giving up you know, religion, but at the same time, it's obviously something that's still in your subconscious because there's a moment in Space Dumplings um, where Elliot the Chicken Boy wakes up from a dream and kind of quotes uh, Peter's betrayal of Jesus somewhat randomly <laughs> and it's, quite a, it's kind of a nice touch for um, I, I imagine actually there may be now kids who won't even get the reference when they read it particularly in international audience but for people who do they go okay maybe this is a bit of kind of human culture that's made it out into the stars I mean, Elliot's probably informed a lot from by Linus from Peanuts, okay. who is my favorite, you yeah. know, of the Peanuts universe. And he's always spouting biblical verses and references, but also some sort of, like, literary references that are over kids' heads. Mm. And that's, that's the pleasure in those characters, you mm. know, like, as a kid, like, maybe not knowing the reference. But as far as my, my own beliefs... Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't label myself an atheist. Okay. Um, I'm still pretty obsessed with Jesus <laughs> as a figure and his teachings. Mm. Um, I don't identify with Christianity or or the Bible as a book. Like mm. I think it's a very very flawed book, mm. and I don't believe in organized religion. Uh, but I still find a lot of uh, structure within Jesus's teachings, and and uh, and then of course. 
this book references Moby Dick. Mm. There's a character who's swallowed by a whale, so there's some Moby Dick, there's some Pinocchio, but that all traces back to the Jonah myth. Yeah. So I know, knew early on that that was part of the structure, too. Mm. Um, so I embraced those things. And, uh, and Elliot is sort of a stand-in for my personality, that sort of like, <laughs> like being obsessed with symbols and mm. sort of esoteric like structures and, and, and biblical and literary references. And the fact that most of the time the other characters have no idea what he's talking about or he's just a bit of annoyance to me is part of the humor. Okay. <laughs> um, because this is set in outer space, albeit with uh, milieu that is somewhat recognizable like fashion studios and junkyards, it does mean that quite often you can make it as spectacular as you want, as non-realistic as you want. Um, Presumably that was a different sort of challenge to doing something like Habibi where you're kind of rendering Arabic architecture and fretwork, which in a way I remember you saying when we last spoke, occasionally you could kind of just t- turn your mind off and just etch in you know, the patterns of Arabic design. Well, with this, presumably you had to think about every single background. Yeah, but there's a lot of pleasure in both of those things. And, and mm. in the similarity to uh, Habibi, as I, I think I described a little bit as Habibi being sort of a... Star Wars world because in a way it was like a galaxy long ago and far away Mm. Um, I was drawing from elements from hundreds of years ago but mashing that up with modern problems Mm. Uh, and and this I was doing sort of the same thing like you know there's something very like clunky archaic 1980s about the whole space dumplings universe of course Mm. these themes are very contemporary and the, that sort of landscape of outer space for me was just completely malleable playground in the same way that the desert landscapes, these rolling dunes in Habibi, mm. there's, it's such a, uh, there's such liberty visually mm. uh, in that sort of world. And uh, the, the universe that these characters inhabit is not uh, a realistic science-based science fiction. <laughs> it's... It's more of almost like a like a coastal, uh, like a little rusty coastal shanty town. Mm. Um, to traverse their galaxy, it's probably less than going across the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> Maybe in a couple of days, yeah. you could get across their galaxy without going into deep freeze. Mm. Um, so yeah, for me it was a great pleasure. I could make every element from scratch, mm. or I could borrow very freely from our own universe, like the tugboats become mm. the spaceships. Uh, the inside of their homes look like rusty trailer parks. Mm. Um, whatever, I didn't even inhibit my imagination. I kind of let myself behave like a child when I was drawing. If a spaceship was going to look like a hamburger, I let <laughs> that be, and I didn't question it. Well, it's interesting that there seem to be different cultural references going on. Obviously, we all have this idea of sci-fi films that are a little bit junky, whether it's Alien or Star Wars, you know, the Millennium Falcon yet again in the latest film is kind of found in a junkyard. But at the same time, when you're having completely uh, amorphous characters like Zachariah, he seems to come from kind of modern cartoons where you have uh, almost like a return to early Fleischer cartoons with characters like Ren and Stimpy who don't really kind of obey the laws of anatomy but just have this kind of amorphous blob you know, aspect to them. So you're, juggler, you're juggling all sorts of kind of familiar cultural references um, and turning them into a stew. And I guess you know, that's something that almost typifies your work to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah, I'm fond of the mashup. Mm. 
And uh, as far as like uh, concocting this book, it started with Zacchaeus, um, the orange critter. Mm. Ever since I was a little kid, I've always drawn some variation of that little bean with rubber hose, arms, and legs. Like you said, it's a Fleischer tradition. <laughs> Ren and Stippy, now Adventure Time. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, it's part of that sort of cartoon, iconic sort of psyche. Um, he first emerged in my Carnet de Voyage book uh, uh, that came out okay. in 2004. Yeah. As in that book, he was sort of my uh, conscience. Anytime mm. I was getting really whiny or overly emotional, he would pop up to sort of kick me in the butt, mm. to kick some common sense into me, which is also his role with Elliot, who's a very mm. neurotic, sensitive character. He's that part of my brain that's always chastising mm. my overly sensitive personality. He came first. I was like, I want to do a comedy book with him. Mm. Elliot the Chicken actually existed longer, and I sort of found him in my old sketchbooks of like, mm. oh, I love this guy. He's fragile, neurotic, like really obsessed with like uh, abstract esoteric thought perfect perfect stand-in for me mm. but they're very flawed flawed characters and they would uh they're they're not really functional mm. as in <laughs> protagonists and then um violet uh, my friend's daughter was born mm. and she completed this sort of trinity of characters mm. she was the everyman and the, and the sort of like glue for the friendship mm. um and then from there it just Exploded. It's like, okay, now it's in outer space. <laughs> I'm going to take, like like you said, it's a goulash. It's a mashup of everything I loved as a kid, along with things that I love now. Mm. And uh, I, I just, I embrace that sort of logic. Of, mm. I think comic books are perfect for that sort of mm. crazy stew of everything yeah. together. Like, you can get away with it in comics. Mm. I mean, obviously, when you're doing a comic, it's just you. Although, obviously, this had a colorist, and we can go on and come on to that in a bit. But in terms of moments where you have characters like running down a corridor and encountering different aliens or bits of slapstick and chase scenes, it feels that those parts are almost improvised, that you've let the story flow and unfold as it needs to and then kind of get back to the plot. I mean, was it a mixture of structure and semi-structure when you kind of approached the project as a whole? Yeah, certainly. I mean, when I write a book, I write for in comics form. Okay. So my first draft is pretty off-the-cuff and improvisational. Mm. But then uh, I go back and rewrite that story three or four times, and I'll discard hundreds of pages, and I'll keep some chunks of scenes in, in their original integrity. The book is heavily influenced by uh, Melville's Moby Dick. Mm. There's a little reference to that early on. And that is like the ultimate... Uh, meandering novel. I mean, that's mm. the pleasure in it. That's also what annoys a lot of readers. <laughs> but the first two chapters of uh, Moby Dick are are mostly comedy, even mm. slapstick. Mm. These these scenes with Queequeg and, and Ishmael mm. having to share a, a bunk. Yeah. Um, Rather then, sleep with a sober cannibal than a drunken Christian. Oh, yes. Your hilarious lines like the the one I referenced. And, you know, and then of course it goes off on encyclopedic. Uh, mm. tangents about the whaling industry and and uh, for me that's the pleasure of that book but of novels in general is those moments where they're allowed to meander I can't remember who said it but that that like a novel is sort of um, a labyrinth like the the author is a rat creating their own maze okay and then f also trying to find their own way out and mm. uh, and then for a reader that's the pleasure is getting lost in that labyrinth Mm. It's the it's it's the author is like 
duty to mm. know that there's going to be an exit for the reader too. Okay. Like I said, this is a rare example of you collaborating in that the whole book um, is colored by Dave Stewart. Did that mean that when you drew it, you drew it in a different way, expecting the colorist to perhaps solve some problems that you set yourself in terms of unifying parts of the page using certain color palettes? Yes, yeah, certainly. I had to learn a new way to draw. I mean, one, because I've I rely heavily on big swashes of black, mm. um, which don't always work with color next to them. Juxtapose. I used to use a lot of hatching mm. and you know feathering, dry brush, all those things. I had to dial back on. Mm. In a way, my sort of drawing style is in conflict with color because I have a very calligraphic sort of brushy mm. style. And really, the best way to draw with color is the Hergé clear line, clear line mm. approach. Because then they're not fighting with each other. Mm. So it was that was like a constant, you know, push and pull of figuring out, you know, what to dial back on. And sometimes a page would look awful once it was colored. And then other times it would come totally alive. And and what Dave was doing would bring extra layers of atmosphere and temperature and depth mm. to what I did. So it was a give and take. And uh, um, it was fun working with Dave. One because I'd known him for at least 15 years. We used oh, okay. to work together at Dark Horse oh. Comics, which was my last real job. Huh. I was a graphic designer there, and Dave was an in-house colorist. Mm. This is before the days that, like, color was farmed out. They were still doing... They were starting to make the transition from analog color, people mm. coloring books by hand and cutting out whatever layers of the... the yeah, the separations yeah. were cut out for CMYK printing mm. and, uh, and only beginning to start doing in-house photoshop coloring so we've known each other for a long time and obviously he's like at the top of the game in the industry he's mm. won like nine eisner awards he was the first person i even considered for coloring and when he accepted i was like oh okay it's done deal if dave's coloring it would be great <laughs> and if i were coloring it would have taken at least one or two more years to finish the book and i mm. would have gone crazy because i don't enjoy being at the computer for that long <laughs> like the less computer the better for me mm. Although it's not your only example of collaboration, um, you recently did, although you might have drawn it years ago, um, the back cover of an issue of Alternative Comics, where I think you drew it and someone else wrote it, and it's another space adventure that actually almost fits in with the Space Dumplings universe. And then uh, about five years ago, you did a couple of collaborations with James Kuchalka, um, where first of all you'd alternate pages and then you'd actually occasionally jam on the same page does collaboration bring out uh, a different side of your creativity that in a way because you don't have to think about every aspect of the project it frees you to a certain extent well the, that first uh, alternative comics uh, piece you mentioned was a jam with Theo Ellsworth okay. who used to be my uh, drawing buddy for most of the process of Space Dumplings so ah. uh, a handful of Portland cartoonists would come join me at my home for one or two days a week to draw side by side at one point I had my Portland home set up with like five drawing tables hmm. it was not a domestic space it was purely like I was trying to turn into a studio and uh, Theo Ellsworth would join me Farrell Darwimple Jen Wang um, a few other people not as well known in the comics industry just to draw pages side by side and yeah it's a fun game to just make jam comics together I've done that since I got reacclimated to comics in like my teens like mm. late teens and usually they 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 aren't great results it's mm. more that process and the pleasure of just mm. doing something with someone else um, there's some really good examples though like I've uh, done a couple sit-ins with uh, the Chicago based Trouble Club 
uh, they have a great online infinite uh, jam comic called Infinite Corpse. Huh. Okay. Which uh, they springboarded off of uh, Arch Spiegelman's uh, Narrative Corpse. Mm. Um, they're like, oh, let's do a version of that that's online that uh, can go on for eternity mm. and anybody can keep building and continuing off of it. Yeah, so there's a great pleasure in it. It doesn't necessarily yield the most uh, <laughs> sensible results, uh, but you learn things mm. about yourself. You, you know, it's fun to paint another artist into a corner mm. and hand that panel off to them and say, ha, like, get your, work your way out of that. Mm. And uh, but, but when you when you are engaged in that process, you learn how to bring some of those skills back to your own work and, and mm. maybe make it a little more sense. Hmm. But I'm beginning to suspect that you wouldn't necessarily want to collaborate on a longer project, either as just writer or a penciler for a different inker or, or so on. I mean, I'm curious about it. I'm always asking myself that question of, like, mm. who would I want to write me a book to mm. draw or who would I want to draw a book that I wrote? Um, so both of those things interest me a bit. I just haven't necessarily solved the problems. Uh, I am uh, working right now with... Uh, Edmond Baudouin, the he's a 74-year-old French cartooning master wow. um, who speaks zero English, <laughs> and I essentially speak zero French. I very preschool-level French, uh, and we've been collaborating on a book. Uh, it's been right, rife with uh, complications. We're writing and drawing at the same time, on the mm-hmm. same pages, and there's a lot of like splicing, a lot of like cutting up one person's page and then collaging it with the other person's page. Uh, and, and again, yeah, it's fun to like let go of some of the control for a while. It's also very frustrating, mm. but hopefully you learn new ways of working through that. And then, and, and, you know, the, I've worked as a cartoonist now for uh, 17 years or so, and that that's, can be very isolating. Yeah. I think it can, you know, like, I think it can be unhealthy, you mm. know, to spend your whole life working in isolation. Mm. So it's necessary to sort of... Sh- sh- break out of that every now and then, shake things up mm. and, and, and learn to play with others again. I'm not sure how long Space Dumplings has been out, but as it is your first book that's genuinely aimed at children rather than one that children might have come across, have you started to get feedback from uh, younger readers and what's that been like? So it came out in September in the States and oh, okay. I did a three-month uh, three book tour, mm. September, October, November. Uh, the very first week, um, and, and so... In the U.S., I was represented by Scholastic, mm. who does only does events with schools, elementary schools. Ah, so you don't do classic uh, book festival and bookstore events. You mm. just go to schools. And w- that first week, the kids were like, we've never heard of you. We've never heard of this book. Uh, but by the second week, there were kids that were already quoting lines from yeah. the characters. You're the whale diarrhea guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and, and they had really specific questions about, like, zero in on a single word balloon or a single panel, and they want to know about the whole background behind that panel. Mm. Uh, so the fans become obsessive very quickly, uh, which is awesome. Like, the enthusiasm of child readers is mm. inspiring. I would say it's been a pretty pretty cool response it's so different i can't gauge it i can't Mm. compare it to habibi tour habibi Mm. tour you know i would go to these amazing venues like uh the skirball center in la or or uh in cambridge square in 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 massachusetts uh the brattle theater Mm. um and then fill out a theater with 300 people Mm. you know adults with intellectual questions now i'm doing these crazy school events with like hyperactive kids and Mm -hmm. uh 
but uh, and they don't necessarily buy the book. Mm. But there is a very contagious energy from them. And one one of the things that happened on U.S. book tours. The kids were demanding a series, and the first time they proposed it, I was like, "No, no, I'm not. That's not my style." But then the more I heard it, it started to. I started to realize, like, "Oh, this is kind of how this kids' book world works. Like, mm. people, they, it's based off of a series sort of structure. So, mm. a sequel for the book sort of wrote itself. Oh, okay. <laughs> during those three months, huh. um, I'm still in a place of not knowing if I'm ready to commit to that being the next project because mm. I'm not that fast you know no. like once well, maybe I maybe this could be the time that you farm it out to a different artist <laughs> I'm considering it yeah <laughs> and, and that might not be my style because like mm. I, I can't imagine Peanuts if it were drawn by someone other than Charles Schultz no but Peanuts drawn by Charles Schultz in the 1950s is very different to Peanut drawn by Charles Schultz in the 1980s they're almost unrecognizable as the same artist I'm not entirely closed off to the possibility. Like, 10 years ago, I would have never considered. But at this point in my life, I'm 40. You know, I'm like... So you start to have a sense of of the limitations in terms of what you can accomplish in your lifetime. <laughs> and I've got at least four different projects that I'm considering, including mm. the sequel is one of them. And... Uh, so yeah, that might be the solution. I hand it off to someone to draw, just so that I can also do the adult books I want to create. You know, it's yeah. it's it's I, it's not the same as when I did Habibi. I was had finished blankets. I was 28 years old. It seemed like I had a whole lifetime ahead of me <laughs> to like hold up in my cavern for six years to work on something. And now I, I don't feel I see I feel more urgency. Mm. Cool. Well, watch this space. I guess. Thank you so much, Alex. Space Dumplings is available now in the UK from Faber and Faber and Scholastic in America. You can find more information about Craig Thompson's work by going to craigthompsonbooks.com. That's C-R-A-I-G-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N-books.com. Listeners to this podcast may have heard interviews with some of the creators of Brighton the Graphic Novel a couple of years ago. And now the producers of that project, former Vertigo editor Tim Pilcher and Sussex-based artist Paul Collicutt, best known for the Murder Mile and Robot City adventures, are curating a follow-up graphic novel called Brighton's Graphic War, a 170-page short story collection based on local Brighton historical information and featuring the work of 15 young writers and artists who are trying to break into the comic book industry. If you'd like to contribute to this project, there are 10 days left, as of the 18th of April, to fund the project on Kickstarter, and they're three quarters of the way towards their £2,750 goal, so the end is in sight. For £20, you can pre-order a copy of the book, plus an invite to the launch. For £30, you can get a signed copy, and for £50, they'll also throw in the first two volumes of Queen's Park, Brighton and Ho photographic collection. For more information about Brighton's graphic war, please go to kickstarter.com and search for Queen Spark Books. Spring brings a variety of comic book events taking place in London and further afield. At Gosh Comics, 1 Berwick Street in Soho, they have a signing of Alphonse That Is Not Okay To Do, a new kids book by Daisy Hurst and that's taking place on Wednesday the 20th from 7pm. American comic book artist Becky Cloonan is in town on Monday the 25th and is signing such titles as Gotham Academy, 
Southern Cross and The True Lies of the Fabulous Killjoys on Monday the 25th from 6pm. Gosh also have a variety of reading groups in store and there's a special trip out for the Capers Superhero Reading Group going to Deptford Cinema, 39 Deptford Broadway in South London on the 26th of April to see the second Captain America film, The Winter Soldier, before the third movie, Civil War, is released the following week. You can find more information about all GOSH events by going to goshlondon.com or by visiting their page on Facebook. Just across town at Orbital Comics, 8 Great Newport Street, near Leicester Square Tube, on Saturday the 23rd of April, John Allison will be in the shop signing Giant Days Volume 2, followed by a director's commentary where the artist will be talking about his work. And the signing starts at 5.30 on Saturday the 23rd. Also on the 23rd, their new exhibition, Danny Strips, is taking place, featuring the artist of the same name. And she'll be back on Saturday, May the 7th, for their special 2000 AD mega signing on Free Comic Book Day, which also features Hannah Berry, Peter Milligan and Henry Flint. For more information about all Orbital events, please go to orbitalcomics.com. Heading north to the Midlands, it's currently this year's Birmingham Comics Festival. On 22nd of April, there's a drink and draw event at Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. You can find more information about that by going to facebook.com stroke pen and drink. The main comic convention taking place at Edgebaston Cricket Stadium, featuring such creators as Guardians of the Galaxy scribe Dan Abnett, Hunt Emerson, David Hine, Lee Gallagher, Steve Pugh, Dave Taylor, Jessica Martin, and many more. And you can find more information about that by going to the comic festival.com finally at the end of the month on saturday the 30th there's a screening of the 2000 ad documentary future shock with 2000 ad creators ian edgington jimmy broxton and phil winslade in attendance you can find more info about all events at the mac by going to macbirmingham.co.uk and the birmingham comic festival by going to the comicfestival.com Panel Borders was recorded, edited, and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production, and you can find all previous episodes on our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com. You can also join the Panel Borders Facebook group, or follow us on Twitter via at Panel Borders. And we'll be back on the second Tuesday of next month. Thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.